0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicas podcast, hosted at potfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 10th, 2019, and this is show number 757. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is really, really special. It's an interview with Ken Case, the CEO of Omnigroup. Now we don't actually talk much about his current work, about the company Omni Group, but rather we start back with how he went to college when he was only 13 years old at the University of Washington. He is an amazing, amazing guy. He takes us on the fascinating journey of technology that ended up leading him to work for Steve Jobs' next computer company and how that changed a view, his view of what computing could actually be. It's a wonderful story filled with super geeky details, including talking about something called BitNet, which I'd never heard of and Bart had never heard of. Anyway, it was really, really cool and geeky, and uh, oh, he actually talked about how he helped write the precursor to IRC, or Internet Relay Chat. You can listen in your podcatcher of choice in the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed, or of course you can listen over at podfeet.com. I really think you're going to love it. This week, I had the pleasure of being a guest again on the Daily Tech News Show. Tom, Sarah, Roger, and I talked about the day's tech news, of course, followed by the main discussion, which uh, was a topic I chose, which was to talk about whether we really need to have a new shiny operating system every single year. We didn't pick on macOS, Windows, Android, or iOS, but they all got their fair share of comments about problems with this rapid pace of upgrades. I have to give uh, Ray Robertson a shout out. This was inspired by the conversation he and I had on Chit Chat Across the Pond two weeks ago. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes to go listen over at dailytechnewsshow.com and I've embedded the video in a separate blog post on podfeed.com so you can't possibly miss it. Go check it out. I have the second interview that I did at MacTech so let's give a listen. You guys know that I'm crazy about docks. I've uh, reviewed, I think, four Thunderbolt three docks so far. I love me a good hub, so I had to stop by the Landing Zone to talk to Andrew Chen about their offerings that they have here at MacTech. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How about you?
0: I'm doing great, having a lot of fun. So, what do you guys do?
1: Well, we make docking stations for MacBook computers. We have full feature docking stations. We have Thunderbolt hubs, and we have portable docks as well.
0: Oh, great! So this is uh, this is all my stuff here. I want all of this. Well.
1: Hopefully, we'll find something of interest for you.
0: All right. So, why don't you walk me through what your offerings are here?
1: So, our simplest offering is sort of a portable docking station, a portable hub, more like. It connects to any sort of MacBook with two Type-C ports on the left side. So, you just slide that in there, and you have access to HDMI, um, power pass-through, uh, USB ports, and SD
0: card slots. So, it's, uh, I'm looking at it right now. So, it's is that uh power delivery, then?
1: Yeah, power delivery port, you have to connect the MacBook's power adapter in there. And it right. just passes through power straight to the computer.
0: So, you guys use both of the USB C ports? Yes. Okay. And so, how many USB C ports do I have when I'm done? Uh, Off of yours?
1: You would have one USB C and two USB A's.
0: Okay. Uh, Actually, no, it looks like. No, you still got two. Two,
1: two, one for power, and then you have one USB C, two USB A's, an additional USB C, but that's just for power delivery, though.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm Uh, and then HDMI. All right. Oh, HDMI, and an SD, card and an SD card slot. Well. Yes, so exactly. I was really surprised that, uh, one of the speakers from OWC was talking about the value of getting feedback was that everybody told him that nobody uses the SD card slot on their hubs. And so they're going to take it out. And I was like, I used mine today. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am recording right now on a Zoom H4N Pro that has an SD card. I have a, I have a, a camera that has an SD card. You know, you got your GoPro, micro SD. You know, you got to have, you got to have SD. Well, one of the reasons why we built the SD was we, we we use SDs
1: all the time in my camera and basically for data storage and backup. Sometimes I use an SD card. So we sort of need an SD card still. So that's why we have it in our docs.
0: Yeah. Now what you do sacrifice and what the people were giving feedback on is they wanted Ethernet. So this one doesn't provide you Ethernet. No, do you have not. any docs hubs that do provide Ethernet?
1: Uh, we do. We are sort of our full feature docking stations and our Thunderbolt docking stations do have Ethernet.
0: Okay. All right. All right, so that's, that's your little one there. What else you got here?
1: So our full-feature docking stations, we have a variety of them. Um, they, we have one for basically every MacBook model, uh, MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, the 12-inch MacBook even. And these sort of dock to all the ports on the MacBook itself.
0: So it looks like you would lay. This is a, actually this looks like an aircraft carrier to me. But <laughs> it looks like you would lay your laptop down in, and then clamp the things on either side that plug into the USB C ports. Is yeah, that
1: correct? More or less. You sort of lay it down. Uh, for these versions, you sort of slide the MacBook into the ports on the left, and then you slide the right wing into the ports on the right side of the MacBook. Okay, and all right. It all together, and you have access to then all the ports on the docking station. SD, micro SD, uh, Ethernet, mini display port, USB C's, USB A's, Ethernet.
0: That is a lot of ports. So that's, yeah. uh, three USB type A. One is high power charging port. We got three USB C type C, HDMI. Oh, two HDMI's. Yeah. That's nice. You got your headphones. Looks like digital optical out on that too. And a key lock. Yeah. So we
1: have a Kensington security sort of slot built into it. You can attach a Kensington security lock. And that makes it so the docking station doesn't open. So help secure both the dock and whatever MacBook is connected to it.
0: Very nice, very nice. Uh, there was something I wasn't seeing that I was expecting to see: uh, power delivery on that. Yes. That must be on so part the, of the free...
1: um, power delivery is included on all of our docking, our full featured docking stations. Um, they come with anywhere between a ninety-six watt to a one hundred and forty watt power adapter. Hundred forty. Yeah. For what them? that takes? Hundred forty. The fifteen-inch MacBook Pro doesn't even take that. Well, we have eighty-five uh, watts of power passed to the MacBook, and then the remaining amount is to power all the ports and docking. Cells.
0: Ah, that's good. So you don't get that message that says, "Hey, I don't have enough power" because you just la- you just tried to charge your watch on your hub that yeah. I get all the time on my dock. I mean,
1: yeah, that's where the two things we're trying to avoid is that power error that comes mm-hmm. up, and the second thing is to make sure that the MacBook doesn't drain at all. Because sure. if the yeah. dock doesn't have enough power, it starts to drain the MacBook power. Yeah,
0: I think the ones I've, I've used are 85 watts, and I'm putting a MacBook Pro on it, 15-inch. Uh, yeah. So I'm sucking all of the power for the MacBook Pro. It's probably only passing through 60, uh, 60 watts of power to the MacBook.
1: And then if the MacBook is using more than those 60 watts... Then it would, yeah. Then, yeah. It would start, then the dock will start draining back power from the MacBook.
0: Okay, okay. I don't see the power delivery
1: port as I'm looking at it. That's why I'm... Down here, it's just the power adapter. So oh, we have the 140 oh. watt power.
0: Adapter. You plug it in there. You don't need to
1: connect the MacBook's own power adapter. That I power adapter right, provides right, right. all you need.
0: But I'm used to seeing it done through USB-C. But you've already connected to the USB-C port with the dock itself. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So okay. we provide a independent power adapter. Okay. So these are we've got a 14 port docking station. Oh my gosh! There's an 18 port. This is the really big uh, aircraft carrier. That one's for
1: the 15 inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. Uh, Apple's currently most advanced MacBook, mm-hmm. and so we want to provide as many ports as possible. The ability to connect three external monitors, optional um, HDMI or Mini Display Port. Holy and cow. All the other ports as well that we've mentioned. Three in
0: the past. HDMI ports and Mini Display Port. Yeah. So, uh, can I ask the price point on these uh, landings? Actually, landing zone. Maybe it's it is an aircraft carrier. Uh, in head, yeah. Can I uh, can I ask the price point on these?
1: So, our full featured one for the fifteen inch, uh, the the. Large aircraft carrier, as you've mentioned, is a three forty nine, and then our ones for sort of the MacBook, Air, the new MacBook Air, are two seventy nine.
0: Oh, that's and then that's, we have ones in the middle impressive.
1: for other docks that are about two ninety nine.
0: Very, very uh, well priced. I think that's yeah. right in right in line. In fact, uh, the eighteen ports not bad at all. All right, now you've got your Thunderbolt three docking station here, and this does not look like an aircraft carrier. This looks like uh, a long paperback book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: in a sense, so this is our first Thunderbolt dock. Um This one will connect to just one Thunderbolt uh port on the MacBook itself and then gives you access to all the other ports. Again, this has power delivery. I believe this one's going to come with a 165-watt power adapter. Holy cannoli. Yeah, 85 watts or more pass-through power, depending on what Apple comes up with next, reverse 16-inch MacBook. My, the 16-inch they're making for me. And me, I hope. <laughs> I need that keyboard. <laughs> and then, again, you have access to a Thunderbolt port, at a display port, so you can connect two monitors. Full-size display port? Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, Type-C's, three Type-A's, Ethernet. And on the front, you have SD cards, another Type-A headphones, and another Type-C.
0: You know, I really like that form factor because having just a couple of things on the front, you don't need to plug into them all the time. You keep those as your spares. But when you just want to plug something in for a, for a minute, you don't want to be grabbing around the behind the thing.
1: Exactly. Just, and what you're going to connect, your headphones, uh, probably a, an SD, basically a normal Type-A hard drive or a uh, flash drive, a Type-C flash drive maybe, and then SD card. Just yeah. the ones you're going to use, the ones you'll connect and disconnect all day long.
0: Right, right, right. That's nice. So this is pretty small compared to some of the other offerings that are flat, horizontal boxes.
1: Yeah, so this one uses basically Apple's latest Titan Ridge chipset. So it's going to be a little more compact, a little more advanced than anything currently out on the market. Uh, I believe this is going to be the first Titan Ridge chipset uh, Ethernet uh, Thunderbolt dock available.
0: Titan Ridge. So what is Titan Ridge?
1: It's their latest Thunderbolt chipset.
0: Oh, okay. Intel, yeah.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what makes our little sets us a little bit apart is we also have a power switch. So it's just easy way to turn it on and off and reset it if you ever need to do that. That's
0: interesting. I'm trying to think why I would need to turn it off, but well, might so, be a time? Same reason you would turn it on or off your
1: phone sometimes you just a little glitchy, or sometimes the MacBook's not detecting it properly. You could just reset it more easily That's than having to nice.
0: power cycle the whole thing. Okay. Oh, actually, now that you mention it, I have had to pull the power on the on my docks before, so <laughs> now I know what you're talking about. So yeah, exactly. So that now you don't have to reach around the back to pl- unplug the power if something were to go wrong. But I'm sure nothing would go wrong with the landing zone. It's there just in case. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> so the Thunderbolt 3 docking station, I think you told me earlier, was not out yet. Is that correct?
1: It's not out. We're hoping to have it available in December of this year. And the retail we're looking at between 299 and 349
0: Great. Well, this looks fantastic. So if people want to learn more about the Landing Zone uh, docks and hubs that you have, where would they go?
1: Uh, you can go to our website, landingzone.net. Um, you can also contact us. Our uh, basically free number is 888-872-3251. Contact us. Ask us any questions. Um, our products are available through DNH as our distributor, and also on Amazon.
0: Very good, very good. I'll be putting those Amazon affiliate links into my uh, into my post about this. That's great. I don't know a nerd alive who will ever pick up the phone and call you, but it was it's interesting that you have a phone number. <laughs>
1: well, unlike some of the other docking station companies, we want people to be able to call in and get tech support. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. I like that. I like that. All right. Thank you very much, Andrew. And good luck to you. Thank, you, Allison. It was nice speaking with you.
0: I've done something very drastic under the hood on podfeet.com, and you haven't even noticed. In a way, that's a very good thing. I actually changed hosting companies for podfeet.com from Bluehost to DigitalOcean. Before we get into some nuts and bolts about that, let's talk about the problem to be solved, shall we? A few months ago, I ran into a problem on my website where I ran out of disk space. Bart and I fussed around with a few things, like how many backups to store and such, and essentially we kind of kicked the can down the road a bit. Well, that bit bit me just last week. In order to serve up the glory that is podfee.com, I have to have two things. A domain name that I rent from one company, and a physical server which I rent from another company. As you can imagine, the cost of the server is related to whether I share it with anyone else... I don't, how much disk space and RAM I ask for, and a few other things like whether I have a static IP address. I do. The first option we considered was simply adding more disk space to my current server at Bluehost. This sounds super easy, and there's even a little button that allows you to add another 30 gigabytes, which would double my storage. Yeah, believe it or not, podfee.com lives in 30 gigabytes. Adding that extra 30 gigabytes would be $10 more than I was paying, but I love all of you as much as I love my own children, so it was worth it to me. Here's the problem. when While Bluehost does let you have another 30 gigabytes, that storage is on a separate disk. So in order to actually use that space, I would have to go back and change links and things to put some content on one volume and another content on another volume, and I was so not going to deal with a mess like that. Since simply adding disk space wasn't going to work, my next option was to work with the Bluehost team to migrate my server to a new one so they could start it with enough disk space to be comfy comfy for a long time. A few years back, I upgraded my server to a virtual private server. They call that VPS. This sped things up quite a bit because I wasn't sharing resources with anyone, as I mentioned earlier, and it also gave me a measure of protection against malware crawling over from other people's servers. The other benefit was that Bluehost would answer my calls pretty much on the first ring, so I didn't have to wait in line with the great unwashed over on shared hosting plans. I was immediately directed to the VPS support team for my technical support. But when I called them this year to talk about how to move my server, the quote-unquote technical support person, and I put those quotes around that on purpose, he said, all you have to do is click the button to add another 30 gigabytes for another $10 per gigabyte. I'm sorry, $10 for that 30 gigabytes. Anyway, I explained the problem with that. He was unaware of how it actually worked. And that's when he said he'd escalate my call to the VPS people so that they could email me in 24 to 48 hours with how it should work. I was like, wait a minute, email? And I'd have to wait days just to talk to someone about how to move my server? I hung up and called back, expecting someone smarter. But I think I got someone even less informed. Again, this quote-unquote technical support person said I could push the button to add more disk. We chatted for a while, and we were doing a couple of things, and he said he needed my login password to check something out. Probably shouldn't have given it to him now that I think about it, but don't worry, I changed it later. My password for my website was created from Bart's amazing service, xkpasswd.net. So it's about 328 characters long. It's got numbers, letters, special characters, and a goat in it. As I tried to read it back to this joker, he got confused when I said, Tilda. He asked me, what's Tilda? That was one of the characters in my, the special characters in my password. I assumed, you know, it had to be just a bad cell connection. He'd have to know what Tilda was if he was a technical support person. And I said, you know, the character to the left of the one on your keyboard above the backtick." tick. And he said, and I'm quoting here, oh, you mean the squiggly thing? Now, I'm not saying everyone should know what the tilde is, and you might not even know what it is yourself. But a Linux tech support person at a hosting company, absolutely, positively, beyond any shadow of a doubt, would have many times a day typed the tilde characters, because it means home directory in Linux. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. At this point, I hung up and I decided to investigate the second option, moving to a new hosting company. Before I tell you about that, though, the VPS people did write back to me two days later, and guess what they said? They told me to push the button to add a second 30 gigabyte disk. The only good news is I was offered a survey from that email, and I may just have explained in that survey about why this answer was what pushed me to change hosting companies. Bart and I started looking at options for a new host. I was interested in Linode and DigitalOcean since BART has an affiliate relationship with DigitalOcean. We went down that path. I'm going to spoil part of the story, but using BART's referral code, I got a $50 credit towards my hosting. After I burn through that $50 and I spend a real $50 of my own money, then BART gets $50. That's crazy pants. I've never heard of an affiliate code doing that much good. All right, so now pretend you don't know that this moving to DigitalOcean thing worked. We took a look at their ho- cost for hosting, what they call a droplet. Get this, their droplet with three gigabytes of memory, I only had two on Bluehost, and 60 gigabytes of storage, double what I had. It was only 15 bucks a month when I'd been paying 28 bucks a month over at Bluehost. This was too good to be true. Of course it was too good to be true. Duh. It turns out I was getting a service called WHM slash cPanel over on Bluehost, and it was not included on DigitalOcean. Ever since I was a wee tiny young podcaster, I've had access to cPanel, and I never appreciated that it was a really cool thing of value. I took it for granted. It wasn't until Bart and I were comparing web hosting services that I learned how much I was actually relying on it. I also didn't understand how cPanel and WHM, which is short for Web Host Manager, we're related. cPanel is a company, and it builds two products, cPanel and WHM. <laughs> All right, confusing right out of the gate. Not surprised I didn't understand. So you got a company named cPanel, but these two services, cPanel and WHM. These two services actually provide completely different functions. cPanel allows a user to administer their website through a graphical user interface instead of the command line. WHM allows a system admin to manage the server themselves. For example, among many other things with cPanel, I can do stuff like use a web-based SFTP client to upload files. I can look at my database with MySQL, and I can run backups. Now, WHM is for more heavy lifting stuff, like upgrading the operating system and the supporting tools that power my website, like the scripting language PHP and the web server software Apache. I use WHM to automatically renew my security certificate, so you get that adorable little lock symbol next to HTTPS in the URL bar for Podfeet.com. Now, I've been using WHM for a while because when I went to my own server on uh, VPS, Bart and I decided that, uh, well, I think Bart decided he was going to teach me how to be a sysadmin. We'll see how that's working out, but that's why I've been seeing WHM is because he's been helping me learn it. Anyway, I enjoyed learning the value of WHM and cPanel because we discovered that I did have to pay for it, but now I knew why I really wanted to pay for it. The cost of cPanel and WHM doubles the cost of my hosting on podfeet.com from $15 to $30. But now I realize I was really dependent on those tools, adding that $15 a month isn't bad at all. Now remember, I was paying $28 a month before to Bluehost, now I'm only paying $30 a month and I'm getting double the storage and an extra gigabyte of RAM. I am a happy camper to pay that extra $2. Now, moving a website is a terrifying operation, at least to me. I haven't done this since I moved from GoDaddy about 356 years ago. Bart explained that we can do this with our lovely new friend, WHM. At this point in the story, I have an IP address, a server has been provisioned, and it has an operating system, which was CentOS, which is the free version of Red Hat Linux. There's no Podfeet stuff anywhere near this new server. We trotted into the WHM interface on my shiny new droplet, and in WHM we found the tool called CP Move. This application tells my old server over on Bluehost to generate a full backup zip it up, and then send it over to my DigitalOcean server, and the new server will expand it. There's some switches here and there on what to do about the changing IP address, but it was really quite straightforward. But there was a huge problem. Remember the problem to be solved way back at the beginning of the story? I was out of disk space on my old server. I had literally megabytes of space left. I'll spare you the days and days of messing around uh, that we did to try to make some space, up to and including where I removed a folder called NoSilicast, had a bunch of old stuff from 2015 and before, and I thought, okay, it's safe to pull that down just to make some space. I'll put it back later. I figured it didn't have anything else important in it. Turned out it had the RSS feed. That means that the NoSilicast podcast itself wasn't working for a few hours until I figured that out. Well, eventually, we did determine that the full backup over on my old site would require twice the space of the backup, and the backup was 3.8 gigabytes plus an extra gigabyte for fun. So I didn't have anywhere near, what is that, like 9 gigabytes of extra space. So guess what I had to do to fix it? I had to push the darn button to buy 30 gigabytes of disk. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well, as soon as I did that, though, I could point the backup to that new drive and it had oodles of room to store those files. And it only cost me $4.77 because it was prorated and it worked perfectly. Once we had a real backup, it was positively magical how WHM was able to scoop it up, unpack it, change the IP address all over the place, and make it work over on my new droplet. Now, another fun nerdy thing to tell you about is how the DNS records play into this. Remember I said I have to have two things to make PodFeed to go, a a physical server where the files are stored, and I have to have the domain name podfeed.com registered. The DNS records are what allow you to type podfie.com, and then the servers across the world know to send you to 157.245.168.5, where my site actually lives now. Well, believe it or not, I still do the domain registration over at GoDaddy, and it's been really great. Gone are the large-chested, scantily-clad women on the front page. There are actual p- pictures of real-looking people doing real-looking jobs, and I'm really happy about that. Bart was pretty surprised when he saw it come up on my screen, and it wasn't revolting. Well, Bart did some really tricky things in my DNS settings that I don't 100% understand. Don't tell him I didn't follow this. In DNS, there's a thing called an A record, and that was simply set to the at symbol, and that pointed to the original IP address. He had me create a second A record and had it set to www2, and he pointed that one to my new IP address. Like I said, I don't completely understand the lingo here, but the result was that for a while you could reach Podfeet on Bluehost at www.podfeet.com, and you could also re- see a duplicate of it over on DigitalOcean at www2.podfeet.com, and they were identical because one was a backup of the other. Once we verified that the new Podfeet on DigitalOcean was fully functional, we changed the A record to point to the new IP address on DigitalOcean. Now there is one and only one pod fee. Other than the backup problem that I had because I had no place to store it, the process was spectacularly easy. Well, after this adventure, I did have a smidge of tidying up to do. Here's a really weird thing we found. I could securely log into my new site as root using what's called a secure shell or an SSH client. Root login is an all-powerful thing with all privileges. However, I couldn't log in using my user account. I couldn't securely FTP either, as my FTP client kept saying, your authentication isn't valid. I had to get Bart involved again, and we discovered something really interesting and good about DigitalOcean. These guys simply do not allow you to log in with a username and password, which is what I was trying to do. You have to have RSA secure keys to log in. Speaking of things that I vaguely understand, but I would have a hard time explaining, RSA keys are a much more secure way of logging in than a username and password. Now, this whole concept threw us for a long time, but once we realized the password was never going to let me in, we used the keys I had for my server, and Bob's your uncle. I was good to go. Another thing I had to clean up was the podcast feeds. I use an awesome tool called Feeder from Reinvented Software to create the little text files that make all the glory that is the PodFeed podcast come into your devices. I push a button, and then the next episode gets published. Feeder is actually securely FTPing that little file up from my Mac to the podfeed.com server. I happily pushed my little publish button on Feeder for uh, programming myself last week, but when I checked in my podcatcher, there was no episode to be found. That's when I remembered that I had to go change the credentials for the feed file over to the new server. I was trepidatious because what if Steve Harris, the developer of Feeder, wasn't clever and forward-thinking enough to allow me to use RSA keys to authenticate to the new server? Shouldn't have worried because of course he thought of that. I fixed the feeds and we were back in business. Well, I lied about one thing in this whole story. I said that I moved my server and you didn't even notice. Well, that's true for all but two of you. Dorothy noticed something amiss when she couldn't upload the Programming by Stealth index to Podfeed.com. Her fabulous index is wee tiny little text files, but she just happened to try to push up those kilobytes while I had wedged the entire server trying to make those backups. We also did have to do a fair amount of work, and it, it took uh, Bart and me a while to try to find a way for her to be able to push her files up to PodFeed.com because I it gets very confusing, and I know the end condition, but this whole RSA key thing wasn't going to work for her to be able to push things up to PodFeed.com. I was able to create in my droplet this little, uh, actually, I think I used, uh, did I use cPanel? Now I don't even remember. I used something to create a, a web disk for her. I think it was in WHM. This web disk, she can just put things on this web disk, and it's actually a little spot on my server that she's allowed to put stuff, and now all of that's working. Well, the second person who noticed when this happened, which is actually now two weeks ago, was Chris. He tried to get to the no and discovered that the last and most recent episode was missing. He decided to finally join our Slack for the first time over at podfeed.com slash Slack and posed a question about it. Luckily, I happened to be playing on my Mac right when he wrote it, and that's when I realized I had fixed the chitchat across the pond light feed, the chitchat across the pond feed, the programming by stealth feed, but I had not actually fixed the NoCillaCast feed. While I was in there, I fixed the Taming the Terminal feed because I know I'm going to forget it between now and when Bart and I finally record a new episode of Taming the Terminal. That will happen, by the way. So with the exception of Dorothy and Chris, nobody seems to have noticed that I moved PodFeed.com. The bottom line is that I learned a lot. PodFeed.com has lots of room to grow. It's much faster now, too. It may be because it's a fresh install of the operating system because we essentially did a nuke and pave, Or it may be because it's a new, more efficient version of the programming language PHP. Or maybe DigitalOcean gave me better resources. Or maybe that extra gigabyte of RAM is helping out. Anyway, it cost me an entire $2 a month more, plus that $4.77 for the few days extra of that 30 gigabyte disk on Bluehost. But you know what, you guys? You're worth it. You know how in fancy pants movies they show highfalutin people being patrons of the arts? They pay for artists and musicians to make the world a more beautiful place. Maybe you're not highfalutin, but you do want to help make the world a better place. Instead of being a patron of the arts, how about becoming a patron of podcasts? You can support the No Silicast and all of the other fine shows we produce over here by joining Patreon. It's really simple. You go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You create a login and then pledge a weekly or monthly dollar amount you think you'd like to contribute. Think of it value for value. How much value do you get out of uh, every show? A lot of people contribute just a dollar a week, and that's fantastic. But some really special people carve out even more. It's relatively painless, and it really helps to keep the show going. Now, listen to me. If you can't afford it, do not push that button. Seriously, don't. I'll come after you. I don't want to hear about it. But if you do have the money to spare and you'd like to be highfalutin, I would like you to push the button to check out Patreon and see if you'd like to contribute to the PodFeed podcasts. As you know, Barbu Shouts and I do a podcast together called Programming by Stealth, which is a subset of the Chit Chat Across the Pond podcast. I know, I should have made it its own show from the beginning. Having it exist in kind of two ways is really confusing, blah, 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 blah. Well, too late. Okay, that's how we did it. Well, before Programming by Stealth, Bart and I did the Taming the Terminal series, which technically, as I mentioned, is not finished yet. And yes, it was also a subset of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Well, I love these shows and I enjoy the heck out of learning from Bart. There's another fun layer of confusion that we also enjoy. The podcast is created by me and it's hosted through podfeed.com. But the show notes, which are actually incredibly detailed tutorials and written painstakingly by Bart, are over on bartbooshots.ie. When I post the podcast, I create a blog post on Podfeet that provides a link to Bart's site, as well as a downloadable MP3 player and an embedded audio player. This audio player is actually the subject of this article, but that's not going to become obvious for a little bit yet. Over on Bart's site, where he has his glorious tutorials, he provides the embedded audio player as well. Of course, if you subscribe to the podcast, these audio players don't matter, but lots of people like the player, and they like the downloadable MP3. If I forget to put that in or I mess up the link, I always get emails. Anyway, as long as we both keep cross-linking to each other, it's all good no matter how you get the show. I mentioned that we both have an embedded audio player on our websites. In the old days of WordPress for websites, you had to use what's called a short code to create this audio player use square brackets, and you had to specify inside the brackets what kind of file you were embedding, like was it audio or video, the codec for it was an MP3 or an M4A, or even a video file. But a while back, the world became carefree, and all we had to do was type in the URL for the location of the file, and WordPress would automatically create a lovely little player on our sites and interpret the type of file and everything. You didn't have to do anything. Now, if you wanted to get fancy pants, you could use your CSS, also known as cascading style sheets, to define things like the size of the player, the color of the play bar, the margins around it, and mess with all those little CSS settings that make listener Helma's heart go pitter-pat. Life was good. Until one day, I went to Bart's website. Instead of the lovely audio player he used to have, there was a plain black bar. No play button, no progress bar, nothing. Just a black rectangle. The audio player continued to look normal over on podfeet.com. Well, I alerted Bart immediately. He studied the problem and he was unable to find a solution. As happens sometimes, we kind of procrastinated on fixing it. That's right around the time that I got to know the lovely Helma and she was helping me with some styling on my site using CSS. I asked her if she would take a look at Bart's site with me to see if we could crack the code on why his audio player was misbehaving. She and I spent several hours trying various things, and we were never able to find a solution. Bart's solution was, he said, I'll just put in a hard link to the MP3 file. So the way that works is when you click on it, it gives you a new page with a big black empty screen, but a player in the middle of it. It's better than nothing. You can open two windows at the same time, keep the thing playing. It's kind of kind of junky, but it worked. Bart went back and fixed a lot of the posts so that you get the link to the MP3s. But last week I discovered that the first 50 episodes had never been changed, so the dreaded black bars were still there on 50 episodes. I mentioned it, and the two of us tried to scrape back through our memory of who was last left holding the ball on when we, who was going to fix it. He was sure I'd promised that Helma and I were going to go back and fix it. I had no memory of that, but I decided it was time to work on this again. There had to be a solution. Well, as an engineer, I was formally trained on how to do controlled experiments. The most important thing when doing experiments is to change one thing at a time and document the results as you go along. And that's really the only way you know for sure whether you fix the problem, whether you know how you fix the problem. This is a pretty simple concept, but we all often fall back on instinct instead of following the process. I knew that this particular problem was going to be a tough one to crack, so I decided to be very deliberate in my work and follow the process. I opened up my favorite place to keep detailed notes, especially those of a technical nature, the application keep it from reinvented software. I figured much of the content I'd be putting into this note would end up being code, so I chose the monospace font courier. This would allow me to line things up correctly, be more readable, and just feel kind of robust. I'd like to say I was brilliant in my path to start, but I'll admit that I stumbled across a clue right off the bat that turned out to be completely useless, even though it looked so promising. I was noodling the problem with Dorothy on the elliptical, as we are wont to do, and I tried to show her the black bars by navigating to BartB.ie on my iPhone. But instead of black bars, there was a perfectly functioning audio player. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I was seeing the problem on my Mac. When I got home, I tested his site on my iPad Pro. Now, an important thing to know is with iPad OS 13, the iPad is now using desktop Safari, the same Safari you have on your Mac. Guess what? It had black bars. So my Mac using Safari had black bars as well, but both Chrome and Firefox did not have black bars. So it was only desktop Safari that had the problem. I should have probably started right there, but I didn't. My first test was to copy Bart's links over to podfeet.com on a test page and see if the audio player worked on my site just the way he had typed it. And it did. Then I copied my links over to his website, and the player was replaced with black bars. So it's not anything about the way we're typing in the link that's causing the problem. It certainly didn't look like it, but you got to start there. I decided to replicate a few experiments that Helma and I had done before to ensure I knew our starting point. On bartme.ie, Bart had the URL for the download wrapped in what's called a div. The div tag simply defines a division or section in an HTML document, and it allows you to add styling to that section. He had added the class podcast, which is then referenced in his Cascading Style Sheets or CSS, and that styles everything to do with that class. Now, in this case, Bart can change the look and feel of everything with that class all at once. So the class podcast is defined as a rounded rectangle with a blue dashed border and a pale yellow background. He's planning on revamping his website someday soon. And when he does, if that styling doesn't go with his new color palette, he can change all of these little sections throughout his entire website by changing just the podcast class in his CSS. That's the power of CSS. Now, Helmut taught me a very cool technique to use in diagnosing problems like this. In a web browser, if you go into the developer tools, and it's different in every different, uh, you know, different browser, so I'm not going to go into how to, to open that, but you can enable something called the Web Inspector. In Safari, where I prefer to work, this reveals a little target that you can drag around on screen, and you can point at specific things on screen, and it'll tell you what element in the code that you're viewing. If you click on that area that you're interested in, down below the normal website page in the inspector, you can scroll through how those elements were created. So I was able to point at the player and find out what the styling was for the podcast class that was on that div. With me so far? Anyway, the web inspector showed me the color he had chosen, the margins he defined, the border, the background and font choices that he'd made. Now here's the crazy cool thing you can do. In this web inspector, each of these little options that Bart had set in his CSS gets a little blue checkbox next to it in the inspector. That means you can actually turn off any of these options, leaving the styling to whatever the parent styling was. So if the styling was what was actually causing these black bars, this should have been able to fix it. Now, don't worry. By unchecking these little boxes in the web inspector, I'm not actually changing Bart's website at all. This non-destructive method lets me see what it would look like with those styles removed, but doesn't actually change his website for anybody else. It's actually really fun. Sadly, though, disabling each one of these style choices one at a time and recording the results did not change whether there were black bars instead of a player. Well, next I tried something that was a bit less of a precise scalpel and a little more in the sledgehammer category. I swapped out his theme. Now, before you panic, let me explain what that means. A WordPress website is many things. In a database, it has all of the data. That is, you know, the text of the blog post and links to the media elements. I wasn't touching his data at all. The theme is a text file that controls things like whether there's a sidebar, what's in the menu bar at the top, and the main styling of the website. You can override the look and feel with specific styling using CSS like we've been discussing, but the theme kind of sets the stage. In modern WordPress implementations, the CSS and the theme files are kept separate. But Bart's theme is from so far back, it's all in that one theme file. So swapping out the theme, I am removing any CSS he has applied to his site. I mean, 100% of it. The cool thing about how all this works is you can switch the themes with a simple click of a button and your content all stays in place. It's just the look and feel of the site changes completely. I needed to choose a theme to swap in. And I noticed that Bart had a copy of his super-secret new theme he's been working on, so I switched to that. Boom! The audio players all came back. So, now we know the theme is at fault. It was right at this moment last week when I realized, I little pea brain said, this is exactly where we wound up last time. We would have to wait for Bart to carve out the time to design his new theme before we could get this fixed. I was kind of depressed. I switched this theme back to the real one. However, in in spite of this concrete evidence that further investigation was complete folly, this time I pressed on in my investigation. Remember the player worked in Firefox and Chrome and Mobile Safari, but it failed in Desktop Safari? It was time to dig into this. I ran through all of the following tests in Desktop Safari. I tried a new private window, I turned off the 1Password and Grammarly extensions I had running in Safari. I disabled content blockers. I disabled prevent cross-site tracking, which was kind of scary. And I was still on Mojave, but I had a macOS Catalina test machine, and I tried it there. Sadly, none of these changes succeeded in getting rid of the dreaded black bars of doom. Trademark Donald Burr. Now it was time to get serious. I installed a new, fresh copy of WordPress on my Mac using the tool MAMP. Now I've mentioned the ability to do this a few times and even made a video tutorial for it on how to do it on Screencast online. Once I had WordPress downloaded on Bart's real website, I was able to figure out that his theme is a modification of a theme called Blue Zinfandel Squared. I downloaded that theme from the developer without any of his modifications, and I installed it inside my local installation of WordPress. I was able to create what I would call... Kind of the distant cousin of Bart's theme? (laughs) It looks kind of like it, but not exactly. I didn't have any of the customizations he'd done, and I didn't want to bother him by asking him to download a copy of his real theme for me. He lets me play inside a small sandbox of WordPress, but I don't have privileges to his files. I think that shows his intelligence right there. I did try to suss out how to download his real theme, but I never did figure that out. Using Helma's technique of analyzing the website, though, I was able to find some of his style sheets. I've been referring to the CSS, but sometimes it's many different files all ending in CSS. I recreated 12 CSS files one by one, copying them from his site, the data from those from his site, in hopes of getting the black bars to show their ugly heads locally, but they refused to appear. No matter how much I abused this local installation, I still had a lovely audio player. Now, for those of you who know anything about WordPress, you've been yelling into your devices, but what about the plugins, Allison? Well, you see, I didn't start here because Helm and I had already gone down this path more than a year ago, so I was 100% certain it couldn't be a plugin. Come on, don't laugh at me. You know you've worked off of old memories before and been certain they were valid, no matter what Dr. Gary has taught us about our memories. Plugins for those not versed in the waves of WordPress are little programs that extend the capability of your WordPress installation. Let's say you want an automated contact form like the one Sandy put on a new WordPress site. You do that with a plugin. Want to stop spam? You install the Kismet plugin. That one is so essential, it actually comes with a fresh install, possibly also a French install, of WordPress. To give you an idea of how valuable it is, I just checked and it is now blocking around 9,000 spam comments per month on podfeet.com Anyway, it was time to ju- to dig into Bart's plugins no matter what my memory was on this was telling me. Bart had around 20 plugins that were currently active with a small handful of inactive plugins that I could ignore. The first thing I did was I copied the name of each active plugin into a numbers file. I wanted to make sure I had a record of which ones to turn back on when I was done experimenting with Bart's site. I had to find a way to determine if one of those plugins was causing the problem in the least number of separate tests. I didn't want to do too many tests. I wanted to limit that. Now, the trick to a problem like this is to not turn each one off one at a time and test. If you do it this way, you might get lucky and the first one you turn off is the one that caused the problem, but it could easily take as many as 20 tests to find the culprit. Statistically, the average would be 10 tests. Well, to save a lot of time, here's what you do. You simply cut the problem in half over and over again. With a list of 20 plugins, we can turn off the first 10, and if it fixes the problem, we have immediately eliminated half of the plugins. If it doesn't fix the problem, we can turn off the other half. If a plugin is the problem, we now know it's in the second half. If it's not a plugin that's causing the problem, we've only done two tests to eliminate all of the plugins as as the problem. Now, if we've got 10 te- in our test, because we've cut it in half, uh, we can cut it in half again, and we have eliminated limited 5 in just one fell swoop. After that, turn off 2 or 3, depending on whether you believe in rounding up or down, and the most you'll have to do is, I think, 4 total tests, instead of an average of 10 the other way. So, the first thing I did was I turned off all the plugins. I really needed to know if a plugin could possibly be at the bottom of the problem. Now remember, we know the theme change fixed it, so this was a real long shot. Well, I turned them all off. Sure enough, the audio player reappeared. Can you imagine my excitement? I ran my cut it in half process, and in just a few tests, I found the culprit. It was a plugin called Subscribe to Comments. Now here's where things continue to be interesting. I use the exact same comment on podfeed.com, and my player still works. So there's some combination of Bart's uh, cascading style sheets, his, his styling, along with this plugin that caused the player to stop working. So subscribe to comments, by the way, is what gives you the nifty little checkbox next to comments on both of our websites that allows you to be notified if someone else comments on the same post. It's a great way to see if one of us responded to you if you've asked a question. So, I learned everything I know about WordPress from Bart, and here's the philosophy he taught me about plugins. First of all, use as few plugins as you possibly can, because they're actually vectors for an attack on your site. They are essential, but if you don't really need a plugin, why open up that possible vulnerability? Second, in choosing a new plugin, make sure it's been updated recently. Make sure it's got a high star count. Make sure a lot of people have downloaded it. Steer towards plugins that have been tested for your version of WordPress. That's not always possible right after a new version of WordPress comes out, but you shouldn't be very far behind. Always say yes when your plugins want to be updated. Well, I took a look at the plugin that Bart and I were running. Get this. It had not been updated in four years. And it had not been tested on the latest three major releases of WordPress. WordPress. Obviously, this plugin violates pretty much every one of our most important criteria for a good plugin. Here's the problem, though. We're both super diligent about updating plugins when they ask us, but how do you make yourself notice that a plugin has stopped asking to be updated? It's kind of like asking a room full of people, you know, everyone who's not here, raise your hand. Well, the good news is that quite quickly, I was able to find a shiny new plugin called Subscribe to Comments Reloaded. This plugin has over 20,000 downloads, it has 4.5 stars by 133 people, it's been tested as compatible with the current version of WordPress, WordPress, and it was updated just a week ago. After I installed Subscribe to Comments Reloaded on my WordPress and on his, I discovered two great things about it. One is that it automatically slurped in all of the subscriptions from the old plugin so you won't lose what you asked for in past posts. The other great thing is that now you can go to any blog post, and if you want to comment, you still can, and you can subscribe to comments, but you can also subscribe without commenting. You can be a lurker. You cannot imagine how proud I was of my little self finally fixing this problem for Bart and, and, and for the users. It was a fun adventure that took a couple of years, but I finally conquered it. When I do something particularly nerdy and I want a little pat on my pumpkin head, Bart sometimes awards me a gold star. This time, he gave me five platinum stars. I am still beaming with happiness about this. Well, with all that nerdiness done, I'm going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Love me a dumb question. Actually, it would be good if they'd be dumb questions that I can actually answer. Somebody sent one in recently, and I was like, yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. That one's not dumb enough. Anyway, you can send me those dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can email me at allison at podfeet.com. Want to follow me on Twitter? At Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com com slash Patreon, Podfee.com slash Facebook, podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, where do you think you go? You go to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic No Silla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.